Hello listeners, and welcome to the next fascinating episode of Figureheads. This week I'm joined by Melvin Benn, who probably has one of the coolest jobs in the world. He's the managing director of Festival Republic, the leading UK event promoter behind Latitude, Reading and Leeds festivals, download, wireless and overseas events including Electric Picnic and Lollapalooza Berlin Festival. In 2017, Ben was instrumental in producing the One Love Manchester Benefit Concert, which was broadcast live in over 50 countries and raised over £2 million for the British Red Cross We Love Manchester Emergency Fund. With vast experience of staging the best in entertainment events, Melvin was a director of Glastonbury Festival for over a decade, chairman of the board of directors of Wembley Stadium for five years from 2011, and currently chairman of the advisory board at Wembley Stadium. And we're going to talk about managing the unexpected. Hello, Melvin. Warwick here. Can you hear me? Oh, Warwick, I can hear you, actually. Gosh, that's very clear. Well, Melvin, thank you for joining me today for Figureheads. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Sadly, we can't be in the same room due to the current lockdown situation. Indeed, I understand that, yes. Now, I'll start by just telling you, I have a confession to make, I've never actually been to a festival. I think I'm put off by the mud. You know, I don't fancy being knee-deep, or at least waist-deep, in mud. Actually, even with mud... It's an incredible experience, to be honest, Warwick. And, right. and actually, there's some festivals somehow don't seem to get a great deal of mud. Latitude Festival, for instance, mm. we don't get a lot of mud. And you'd love it there. It's very theatrical. It's very artistic. And, you yeah. know, opera and dance, as well as music and literature and poetry and theatre and all sorts of things. But mm. it, somehow it doesn't seem to get too muddy. Yeah. The only festival I actually went to was for my ITV travel show. I went to a festival called Bestival down in the south of England. It's like a family festival. And I ended up introducing Chaz and Dave for their set on stage. Oh, did you? Yeah. So I was able to experience the kind of atmosphere at an event like that, which is incredible. Fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, it's spine tingling, isn't it? It is. Yeah, no, best, festival was a great festival. Mm. Was that festival or camp festival? Oh, I don't know. It was quite camp. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> the camp festival is the family version of festival. That was what it was. Yes, it was camp festival. So that's my limited experience of festivals. Obviously, you're an expert. You've been in the industry over 50 years. Is that right? My first festival was 50 years ago next year. So 49 years ago. That was the first festival I attended 49 years ago. Well, you really have one of the coolest jobs out there. I mean, you get to meet rock stars and uh, travel the world, I'm sure. Is it a cool job or is it stressful? Um, it's both, actually. I think there's um, thousands and thousands and millions of people who would swap places with me. But it is, it's definitely both. It's pretty cool at times. It's more often stressful, but it's helped by having a great team, actually. So, Melvin, the theme of this episode is managing the unexpected, which I should think in your career you've done a lot of. I guess so, in that uh, nothing almost can be expected at a festival, in a way. Mm. So, yes, that's my daily bread, I guess, to a degree. Do you enjoy it when something unexpected happens or does it stress you out? I deal with it. I mean, it would be wrong to say that I enjoy it. And of course, it can be stressful depending on the issue. Yeah. But the real desire is for the unexpected not to happen. Mm. But, you know, I do bring 
hundreds of thousands of people together in a field and I do bring lots of artists together. So, you know, there's always a possibility of unexpected in that sense. But quite often it's not those two parties that create the unexpected. So in my career, when something unexpected happens, I usually go into a bit of a panic as it happens and then look to who I can turn to to help me solve this particular problem. The initial reaction is panic and worry and stress. I'm not a very calm person under pressure, I will say that. I think in fairness, that is probably everybody's. I think, mm. I think that's my initial reaction, really. I guess the thing that I do is manage to let go of panic very quickly and realise that actually there's nobody else to solve it except yourself, Melvin, so you better get on no, with that's it. Right, yeah. I, I, you know, I grew up in, in a very pragmatic life in Yorkshire where nobody stands on ceremony. Uh, if you don't solve your own problems, you, you, you know, you've got no chance in a way. I guess is how I grew up and, mm. and I've kept that with me really. So it's about converting that panic energy into focused energy to solve the particular situation. I think so. I always believe everybody's capable of everything in truth. I do believe that and so I don't think I necessarily have anything that others don't have. I just think that I've learned to apply things in a way that others haven't, that's all. So I think most people underestimate their own capabilities. Let's just talk a little bit about some of the career moments that have presented unexpected problems to you. I'm particularly interested in talking about the event at Crystal Palace. We had a problem with the trains. That's actually an event that hasn't happened yet. Part of the process of events happening is that you have to, events in a green field or a, a temporary space, is you have to obtain an entertainment licence. Mm-hmm. And to obtain an entertainment licence, you have to go through you know, quite rigorous process of being able to demonstrate that you're able to get people to the event, able to get people away from the event, able to provide adequate medical services and, you know, adequate parking spaces, et cetera, et cetera, a whole gamut of things that say, yes, yes all of a sudden 45, 50,000 people can descend on Crystal Palace. You have to demonstrate that to, you know, the police, the local authority. And in doing so with Crystal Palace, which is an event that I'm launching this year, a brand new event, we're in the middle of London, so we're very heavily dependent on public transport. Mm. And Crystal Palace has got three main train stations around it that we can use. And to get 45, 50,000 people away from a festival site relatively easy and relatively quickly, you have to be able to use public transport to its fullest extent. And unfortunately, we found... Uh, despite doing enormous amounts of checks, we found literally two to three weeks before the entertainment licence hearing was due to be heard mm. uh, that one of the train stations, in fact, the main train station that we were going to use, um, which would have taken 27,000 of the 45,000 audience, and Network Rail told us it would be closed, oh. which actually just puts a stop to the event in a way. So you said, no, we're going to have to stop this. This is unsolvable. No, I never, ever say that, unfortunately. I always think that there's a way through, Warwick. And, and I have to say, I'm very rarely proved wrong that there isn't a way through, if I'm being honest with you, because I'm, I'm pretty tenacious about, you know, my commitment to making an event happen. Mm-hmm. And I hasten to add at this point, we had all the artists booked for the festival. Oh. Um, they were all coming anyway. They all thought it was all happening because I told them it was. <laughs> and so my first thought was to say, well, okay, maybe we can organise enough buses to get 27,000 people back into central That's London. That's a lot of buses. 
that's a lot of buses. <laughs> and, and, you know, we were able to do that. And one of my team came to me and said, yes, I've got it all worked out, Melvin. I think it'll be around 300 or 350,000 pounds. And it's like, okay, that's pretty expensive. But actually, I could aggregate that over six nights because mm -hmm. the event is over six nights. And then about three days later, she emailed me. And, and I think she probably had three nights of sleeplessness. And she emailed me and said, Melvin, I don't think I was very clear in my email. I meant to say that it was about 350,000 a night, oh. not 350,000 across the six nights. It's like, we have a problem. So what's the first thing you did when you realized you had a problem then? I mean, anyone else would go into a blind panic then. I contacted someone that I knew who had previously been very high up in the mayor's office. Oh, yeah. And she'd had a role on public transport. And one of the organizations that is almost more difficult to get to than MI5 or MI6 is the leadership of Network Rail. Oh, yeah. You can't find <laughs> them. And so I thought the only person that I would know uh, that would be able to do this is this particular lady. And we contacted her and she duly contacted her former contacts in Network Rail. And she borrowed away and I borrowed and and in truth, eventually, we managed to get to the important people in Network Rail who sat on a, a Zoom call with us mm -hmm. and were absolutely delightful and were persuaded by the argument that this was a valuable reason to change their scheduling, which takes a long time. Network Rail generally schedule about 18 months to 36 months in advance mm -hmm. when the work is going to take place. It was worrying, incredibly worrying. Mm. It's trying to find the right contacts that may know them. And yes. it's not about being underhand. It, mm. Everything was done properly in that sense of it. Uh, there were no favours done. There were no Christmas no. hampers sent <laughs> or anything of that sort. Network Rail, of course, why would they know that a new event was going to be mm. started in Crystal Palace Park? I bet you've got the most amazing little black book. <laughs> <laughs> so, Melvin, for our listeners, what would you say would be the most important thing that you did during that situation? Well, I, I guess it would be two, Warwick, really, two, two points. The, the mm. first is, um, is to absolutely examine every single thing that can go wrong. That would be the first. Yeah. And it's fair to say my team had examined every single thing except one thing that could go wrong, and they missed that one thing. Right. And so it's always important to do the 100% work rather than the 99% work. I think that's always the case. I think the second point is to just take a moment and reflect that actually it's other human beings that may be able to help you. It's other people. It's not just an organization. It's not just a company that may be able to help you. It's a person within that organization or that company. Right. And if you can find them and if you can talk to them reasonably, usually they will behave reasonably back to you. And um, that uh, really is the lesson, is to try to think that actually people can get you out of this problem. Now, you mentioned in there that um, someone from your team perhaps sort of missed this in their pre-planning. Now, I expect anyone else listening, if that was their business, they would immediately place blame with that person and get angry and probably get them to sort it out. It's your problem now. You've got to sort this out. You made this mess. Do you do that, Melvin? Or you just get on board and sort it out yourself, don't you? I do. I mean, ultimately, I guess the one thing that I've 
I've always had it really is mm. that my team, my team, and they work to me. And ultimately, whatever goes wrong is my fault. I'm very much of the old school of, you know, the buck stops with me. But I protect them. I look after them. And the one thing that I would say my team know is that I'll never expose mm. them. They know that I've always got their back. And they know they can always make a mistake. Mm. They know they can't make it twice, <laughs> it's fair to say. We're dealing with difficult things creating mm. big events in open air spaces. And we're always dealing with the unexpected. We're always dealing with things that we don't know is around the corner. And people are bound to make mistakes in that. And, and I take the view that it doesn't matter what the mistake is. I will find a way to get mm. over it. But I can only do that if they tell me. And if they don't tell me, that's a slightly more difficult problem. A few years ago, you were trying a new technology at your festival, cashless payments. That didn't quite go according to plan, did it, Melvin? No, that was an inherited situation, actually. It was a, a festival that I had taken over quite late in the day in the planning process. And one of the things that was in place was the first mass introduction of cashless. In principle, a great idea. Because then there'd be no theft. In principle, a phenomenal idea, yes. I effectively inherited the responsibility mm. of the festival. I'm going to say the week of the festival, it was that close. And what I inherited was a technological solution being provided by a company who had made their name. They are a great company. They continue to be a great company. But they'd made their name in toilet. Oh. And they wanted to branch out into technology. I can't even follow that timeline. How do you go from toilets to cashless payments? <laughs> they saw it as modern and an opportunity, Warwick. And of course, they did it, A, without any experience. B, they did it a great deal because they wanted to get into mm. that world. Two huge mistakes. Mm. Sometimes a deal can be too great. The price was too low and the company was too inexperienced. And you have disaster. Literally, it was set up so strictly that you couldn't buy a cup of tea unless you were buying it cashless. Right. Um, but if the technology didn't work, that meant that you couldn't buy a cup of tea, you couldn't buy a hot dog, you couldn't buy a sandwich. And nobody had quite thought to think about the consequences of mm. failure. And technology is absolutely extraordinary, mm. but it can trip you up. And I'm moving this year, for instance, to a much more significantly cashless base throughout all of my festivals. Mm. I think because the public are ready for it. I think because the technology is ready for it. And I think because I now know the consequences of failure, I feel more trusting and more capable and more willing to go, go forward. And you've probably had more time to plan this time and seek out every possible thing that can go wrong with this. Actually, when you're in a green field, when you're in a, a remote environment, I always say to my team, everything goes wrong in the planning. Because you have no solution around the corner when you're producing a festival. No solution at all. It's not like you're painting your house and you run out of paint. You nip to home base or B&Q or the local paint and decorator shop and you get some more. There isn't a place around the corner that has more cashless wristbands. 
Athens, for instance, no. there isn't a place around the corner that has a stage that they're not using that day. Uh, you have to plan every single item. And actually, anything that goes wrong at a relatively well-planned event is much easier to overcome. When you talk about learning from your mistakes, there's something that you do, isn't there, after your events where you kind of whiteboard and you put all the things that went right and things that went wrong on this board. Correct. Well, it, it's not quite a whiteboard because I think um, it, it, sometimes it would have to be quite a big wall. So it's actually a spreadsheet and it's something that I call an event improvement plan. I asked my team to, you know, let's say, for instance, the, the stage builders. I asked my team to get feedback from the stage builders about whether the process of building the stage, whether their arrival process at the time that they were allocated, whether all of that worked, for instance, whether, whether the provision of water to the festival goers could be improved upon. You know, so I ask all of the contractors, I ask many of the artists, I ask the agents and the managers, and of course I get lots of letters and emails from the festival goers themselves that say, well, this was our experience of coming through the ticketing process. I get my team to list them all. And, you know, we have a, you know, a red, amber and green system of marking them out. And, and they're all in red at the beginning because they're things that could be improved upon. And they're amber at the point at which we're working through. And, and they're green at the point at which we think we found the solution to making it better next year. Because it's really important that at the time you start taking notes about what you can improve the next time. Because without that, you continue to make the same mistakes year on. And then you start to lose the, you know, the trust of the public and the trust of the artists. Of course. That's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people would shy away from it thinking it would actually end up costing them money, you know, having all these problems presented to them. No, no, for me, no, no, for me, it's quite the opposite, mm. Warwick. I'll be absolutely honest with you. I mean, again, ultimately, I'm interested in creating events that have long-lasting lifetimes. They may only last three days a year, but they last for decades really and and I have to build a trust with an audience I have to build a trust with a contracting base and a staff base that they know that they'll be able to come and work that event or come to that event uh, and get some enjoyment out of it mm. and um, the less time that they are wasting the more time they will enjoy it I think. I'd like to just cite one more example of your incredible organizational skills you managed to arrange a large-scale concert in eight days in Manchester for One Love. So tell us about putting that concert together. Well, that was an extraordinary time. The One Love concert was to commemorate the people that had lost their lives and been injured at the uh, Ariana Grande concert in Manchester Arena. And it was Ariana herself that wanted the concert to happen. I wasn't involved in the concert uh, at Manchester Arena, where the bombing took place. Of course, I was shaken by it as... Everybody in the country was, and myself possibly more. You know, it was your industry. Because mm. it's my industry, so it, it, it felt even closer to home. Probably just three days later, four, three or four days later, I was invited to a conference call with Ariana's manager, Scooter Braun. And it was myself and uh, another promoter, a promoter called Simon Brand, who's Manchester-based. Ariana wanted to do a, a concert to commemorate and raise funds for the victims and the victims' families. And uh, he was saying Coldplay wanted to do it, and this band wanted to do it, and that band wanted to do it. And Simon and I were just, you know, massively enthusiastic. Of course we would be. 
and then somehow Scooter dropped in that he wanted to do it eight or nine days later, eight days later it was. I just dropped um, that in casually into the conversation. And he sort of did, if I'm being, we were on this conference call texting each other saying, <laughs> how are we going to do this? But all the time, of course, we're, we're music promoters, so we always think we can achieve things. Mm. And when you know that you have an artist um, that really wants to do something for the right mm. reasons, you can move heaven and earth. And we really did move heaven and earth. And we were fortunate in one sense that we knew that Lancashire Cricket Ground was available on the bank holiday Monday, which was eight days later. But we mm. knew that it would have a stage up because a, a band called the Cortinas were going to play there on the Saturday. And Simon was promoting that show and we could leave the stage up. So we were sort of halfway there. And Simon and I turned up at the uh, cricket ground. And we had been told late on the Sunday evening about a football match that was taking place at Old Trafford Football Club. Mm at the same time. And uh, Old Trafford Football Club and Lancashire Cricket Ground are about three quarters of a mile apart, maybe half a mile apart. They both use the same train station. Mm -hmm. These things can't happen at the same time because the two audiences would have got mixed up. The station wouldn't have been able to cope with it all happening. How many days prior to the event did you find out this information? Five days. Ah. Five days. So then Um, did that send you into a spin or were you calm and collected about this? It did. It did. No, it sent us in a little bit of a spin. And so we actually were sat in upstairs at the Lancashire Cricket Ground and it was a testimonial game for Michael Carrick, who was just retiring as a footballer from Manchester United. And it was his testimonial game to raise a lot of money for charity. And it was going to be televised uh, live by ITV. Mm. And it was on at four o'clock and we had a position where they were due to kick off at four o'clock and we were due to start at six Mm. o'clock. And and it would have been impossible to happen, absolutely impossible to happen. And so we thought, actually, well, let's contact all the football players that we know and all the football managers or anybody that we knew in the FA or the Premier League and all that. Out comes your black book again. We spent literally all day ringing people that we knew in football to see whether we could get this game changed and move it to a different day or move it to a different time or something like that. And it was absolutely impossible. It's interesting the way you responded to this. A lot of people would have said, right, we've got to move to another venue. We've got to take our event, move it somewhere else. But instead you decided to try and change what the other events who already planned for months, if not years, and try and change what they were doing. (laughs) Well, in fairness, there was no other option, if I'm honest with you, because there's a limited amount of spaces in uh, in Manchester and it had to be Mm. in Manchester. We knew that Ariana wanted to do it on that day. We knew that Coldplay could Mm. do it on that day, etc. And so we spent that day attempting with zero success to find the right person to speak to, to move the the Michael Carrick Mm. testimonial. You know, we spoke to people very high up at Manchester United, at at the FA, at the the Premier League, etc. But because it was a testimonial, it was outside of all of their structures. Mm. And so they couldn't move it, they couldn't influence it. And this is one of the things about big events. They need an awful lot of people to contribute to them, to make happen. And I'd say... Probably two or three of the people that really, really made the difference in that scenario. The chief exec of Trafford Borough Council at the time was fantastic. She was amazing. The chief constable of Manchester, Greater Manchester Police, was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary in trying to Mm. make this happen. 
a ship at Manchester was in the middle of it, trying to make it happen, wow. etc. It was a phenomenal effort. And, um, and one of the things that the chief constable said to me was these two events cannot happen on the same day unless you move the football game to very early in the morning. And I persuaded him that 12 noon, he said, okay, if you can get the football game moved to 12 noon, we can get the public in and out for the football game between 12 noon and three. And we can get the concert goers in after three o'clock and they can start arriving after three o'clock. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a task. So eventually I managed to find Michael Carrick's agent and Michael Carrick's agent was fantastic but of course she wanted to protect Michael and she wanted to protect the charity income that she was generating and Michael was generating and she also wanted to protect the viewing for ITV because they'd got their program planned and they were all deals that she'd done and all that sort of stuff she was very sympathetic to what we wanted to do and after a huge amount of negotiation I managed to persuade her to move it from a four o'clock kickoff to a two o'clock How do you do that say please a lot of times? Please a lot of times. But of course, that wasn't enough for the chief constable. The chief constable mm-hmm. wanted 12 noon and was adamant that it couldn't happen unless it was 12 noon. The chief constable had been very explicit to me and had left it at that. And I then started dealing with one of his chief superintendents. And I don't think the chief constable had been quite so explicit to the chief superintendent. He didn't need to. He'd been explicit to me. And I took a chance. I took a chance and said, I'll be able to make this work even with a two o'clock kickoff for the game and a six o'clock opening gate for the concert. And I did that partly because as it happens, most people know I'm a Manchester United fan. And so I know how to get off that train and walk to the cricket ground and walk to the football stadium and all that sort of stuff. And As it happened, the chief superintendent was a United fan. And also, as it happened, he knew his way around and was the commander for the area. So he knew his way around. And everything was going swimmingly. It was really, really tight. It was really, really tight. But the Friday morning chief constable and chief superintendent's meetings that happen every Friday morning, I guess, where the chief superintendent announced just as part of the planning that, yes, everything was okay. We've managed to move the game to two o'clock everybody's happy. The chief constable, I mean, he he lifted the roof. He was so angry it wasn't true because his deal with me was 12 noon. And so I immediately was called to the police station uh, to meet the chief constable. Escorted there or did you go under your own? Escorted there, as it happens. (laughs) uh, Escorted there. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to go and meet Ian Hopkins. Ian and I became friends during that and I had to go and see him and explain and he was furious but he sort of knew that he had no choice at that point and it was stressful it was super stressful because the football fans came and they didn't really even know the concert was going on and then the concert fans came (laughs) and they didn't know the football match had been on and we worked at pedestrian routes out and all sorts Mm. of things it was in an extraordinary circumstance it was a joyous moment to be able to open the gates to all those fans. I bet it was, yeah. What Ariana did was extraordinary. And and, and it'll be something that lives in all of mm. our lives for a very long Absolutely. time, I think. I mean, you've got police shouting at you saying, you can't do this. How do you keep a calm head through all of this? No, I'm not quite sure, if I'm being honest with you. One of the most extraordinary things about it was that the concert was taking place the day after the Champions League final. 
Um, the Champions League final was happening in Cardiff. The testimonial football match had been organised the day after the Champions League final because obviously for the Champions League final, lots of famous footballers are in and around the UK mm-hmm. if it's in uh, Cardiff. And they were all booked on flights that were leaving at 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock to get back to Manchester for the testimonial football mm-hmm. match. And of course, I had moved it to 2 o'clock And so none of their flights worked for them to be able to get back. So I had to charter a private jet to get them all back. You solved one thing and then create another problem that you then Um, had to solve. Sir Alex Ferguson was managing, um, I don't know whether he was managing the Michael Carrick team or the other team, but he was doing some TV stuff so he couldn't get back at the same time as everybody else. I had to get him a separate helicopter. And then we discovered that uh, having got the private plane, that they couldn't get a slot to fly out of Cardiff Airport. And Cardiff Airport wouldn't give us a slot to leave. So we had a plane, we had uh, we had a plane, we had a lot of celebrity footballers on the plane. Just one problem after another. And I took that to Ian Hopkins, who was the chief constable, and he said he would try and sort it out with the chief constable of Cardiff or Wales. Mm. Um, the chief constable that he spoke to said, I can't do anything about it because Cardiff Airport have subcontracted the management of the uh, airport to an Italian company that I've got no relationship with. And extraordinarily enough, I, I between Ian and I, we came up with the idea of speaking to the Home Secretary. Oh my goodness. Um, he spoke to the Home Secretary and somehow we got a slot. And the levels that one has to go to to make something work at times are extraordinary. But if you think of what the One Love concert stood mm. for, there was no limit to the levels that we would go to. I mean, that's an incredible story, Melvin. I mean, Liz, it was one problem after another. Any lesser person would have just given up after the first problem. But you carried on. Imagine if you'd been on the Apollo mission, you would never have said, Houston, we have a problem, would you? You'd have solved it well long before that. <laughs> Melvin, before we finish, what is the best and worst piece of business advice you've been given? I think the worst is really people that tell me that it'll be okay. But you do that as well, don't you? I do say that it'll be okay because I know that I can deliver okay. it. People that tell me that it'll be okay without making the effort to make it oh, okay right. um, is the difference. They're just trying to comfort um, themselves, probably. Things are never going to be okay. You have to make them okay. Effectively, the old adage that, of course, you have in your world as well, it'll be all right mm. on the night. As you know, Warwick, without rehearsing those lines, it's never all right on the night. And without planning to make it good, it's never going to be good. It's surprising how many people still take a chance and think it'll be okay without putting the effort in. In terms of the best business advice, everything's about the customer. Everything's about the customer. And I guess I extend that to being everything's about the customer and the artist. But for me, everything's about the customer. And I think if businesses ever lose sight of that, they're getting it wrong. Melvin, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and uh, I admire you greatly for what you've achieved throughout your business career in um, managing these huge events and also the uh, unexpected situations you've found that have come from the organisation of those events. But I suppose the overarching lesson from you for me has been to A, keep your cool, keep calm and never give up. Well, that's really kind of you to say that, Warwick. I think it is um, very decent of you to say that. Thank you. Gosh, 
Warwick, it's been so nice. It's really gone quickly. That's a credit to you, I'd say, because I, I don't normally sit anywhere for that long unless Manchester United are playing. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been amazing. No, it's lovely to talk to you. Very nice. Well, well, I hope you'll agree that was a fascinating episode and isn't Melvin a brilliant man? Just proving where there's a will, there's a way. Or in this case, where there's a Melvin, there's a way. Thanks for listening. And of course, all of this has been made possible by Barclaycard Business. 